nine vital signs. Um, we're working through Galatians chapter 5, little section which is described as the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, if you haven't read that section in your Bible before, can I encourage you, go home tonight. Uh, if you haven't got a Bible, see me at the end. It's not a problem. We can make sure you've got one. If you have got a Bible, then read Galatians chapter 5 and just see where this sits. Really what uh, Paul is doing is he's encouraging these, these Christians, young Christians. Uh, every letter is written to young Christians, relatively speaking, because the, the, the Christian faith has not been around that long. Uh, when the first readers received these letters, and he's encouraging these young Christians to be open to God working in their lives. That's very different. He describes it as a fruit of the Spirit. In other words, when the Spirit of God works in our lives, then changes occur in our lives. That's different to us believing that we can do the things. That's not to say that we're not involved in the process of a life change, but rather it means that any life change is because God is working in us. It's a fruit of his engagement in our lives. Now, it's been a great privilege down through the years to speak to many different people who've come to faith in Jesus, some for many years uh, past, some very recently, and for them to be able to express and to be able to talk through those areas in life where we realize that God is changing us. That's part of our expression of faith in him. We realize that we are changed. Now, very often, we also realize that there are lots of other areas that we still need to be changed. In fact, the closer we come into the light... The, the more we recognize the failures and the weaknesses of our, of our own being. That's a good thing. And so we place our trust more in God. Now one of the things that we see, one of the uh, fruit that we see, is goodness. The fruit of the Spirit is goodness. That's a really kind of... Well, actually, in our generation, in our culture, goodness... It's quite a weak word, isn't it? Well, what does goodness mean? It's just good, not bad. Actually, we reverse words now, don't we? Something which is bad is actually good now because we use bad to describe something as good for a start, which is, I mean, don't, you know, trying to learn English must be quite challenging because something that's bad is good. But also we have a tendency, because of our sinfulness, to think that bad things are good. I'm not describing that and saying that we use this word in different ways. But goodness, in contrast to evil, bad, whatever we describe it as, has been a constant theme of human experience. This idea of good and evil. This idea of right and wrong. This idea of good and bad. If you want to take a trip back through literature, you will, will realise that there is this constant stream of good and bad. The triumph of good over evil. The idea that good is a virtue. The idea that bad is, a, 
is a vice that, that bad things are to be subdued, that good, we want good to win. It's a constant theme of our human experience. One of the other things that I realize, on one hand, that's good, that's goodness. On the other hand, on the other side, we engage with that life. We, we live lives, don't we? We have things going on in our life. We decide certain things. We decide to do certain things. We decide to live our lives in certain ways. What we decide is good. What we decide is bad. What we decide is evil. What we decide is virtuous uh, shapes the way we, we live. In fact, when we really think about it, what we believe shapes the way we live. Let me describe it in this way. If we really look at, I'm going to use a bit of a bizarre description here. If we really believe that uh, Jeremy Kyle is real life, you know, that that kind of the nitty gritty of all of that is real life. And and some of us might be in a a life where we say, hey, that, that is my reality. If we see that as a normal life, as a a life to be lived out, we then start living with an an expectation of drama in our lives. And when we live with an expectation of drama in our lives, then drama becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy. We live with drama in our lives. We live out what we believe to be the case. If we believe that the kind of pinnacle of life is the celebrity lifestyle, the objectives of that kind of achieving it kind of lifestyle, we will live out in our own way that kind of life. We will aspire to certain ways of living. In other words, what we believe about the core of life, the very essence of human experience... What we believe is right, the way to be, we will end up living it out. It's why there is a repetition of certain aspects of behavior from generation to generation to generation within many families. It's why we see that as a pattern of human life. It's why we see that certain communities pass on a certain way of living to the next generation, to the next generation. Because the generation that is growing up is looking at this way of living and saying that is normal life. That is the way to live. Other communities might look on and say what you've decided is good, is not right. But this community is living in because they believe that to be the way to live. We live out. So here's the thing. When God enters into our experience, when God breaks into our hearts, when we are changed in the radical experience of coming to faith in him, what does life look like? How is it changed? What is our redefined perspectives on good and evil and right and wrong? How are we changed in this way? I suppose, I suppose we all have ideas of, you know, good and evil, right and wrong, good winning, 
and you know the banal is that you know as kids Tom and Jerry the bad cat and the good mouse the, the good mouse always wins doesn't it you know, it always ends up the bad cat does all of the stuff to, to the good mouse and the good mouse wins and we, we have empathy with the, the good mouse who finally the little guy who finally comes good the cute guy who finally comes good the one who's not scheming and conniving comes good at a deeper level, there are character traits which are being described in that little scenario which we are beginning to learn to associate. We understand, we begin to learn as little kids that scheming and conniving is not a good way to be. That's wrapped up in the bad cat. What's wrapped up in the, the good mouse is a certain way to live. And then we grow up. And we realise actually there are far more difficult moral dilemmas that we face. That the stories become far more complex. That the right and the wrong and the good and the bad becomes far more difficult to work out. It is not that clear, is it? We realise that the bad things that are happening to one person and that person then winning results in that person doing bad things to win. The stories change. I watched last week uh, a book that I read a year or so ago. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. If you've seen the film, it's a pretty shocking film. Full of moral dilemma. Somebody who's been just abused. And you have empathy with that person. Then makes moral decisions which are wrong. Where's the right? Where's the wrong? Where's the good? Where's the evil? How are we to live? How is the power of the Spirit of God entering into our lives, causing us to change? What does goodness really mean? We're going to look at this little section where we see Jesus meeting with this particular man. Because I think that this text shifts our perspective of goodness. Here we see this, uh, Jesus is on his way. That's all it says. He's travelling along the road. He's actually in the region of Judea. He's travelling along the, 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 the road there. And a man runs up to him uh, and fell on his knees before him. That's a remarkable thing anyway. It's, even in that day, it was a surprising thing. He, he, plays hom he pays homage in his bodily posture to Jesus. He, he recognizes and places Jesus in a position of authority by his literal action. He runs in front of him, gets down on his knees, and he says, Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He asks the most important question in the whole of human experience. What must I do to gain life? It's just a profound question. We haven't got time to deal fully with that question this afternoon. But I think at least what it does is it opens up in our minds that all of us in this room know that there is something in our being, something in our human consciousness, 
that says that this life is not all there is. There is something about life beyond. That's, maybe, you, maybe you've worked through that and you've come to the decision. You've come to the conclusion, I don't believe that. I don't believe that there's anything beyond this life. I believe that when you die, you rot in the grave or you're consumed in the flames and that is the end of you. I, I, I hear what you're saying. But the reality is that for all that we want to believe that, we might want to believe that, again and again, repeatedly through our human experience, we are faced with the challenge, we are faced with the question, what happened to the one that has gone before? What happens to me? What happens to me beyond life? And this man, he's come to a conclusion, there is more. Now he's obviously shaped by his history of understanding his faith according to the Jewish tradition. He believes that there is eternal life. And he says to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Good teacher, what does good look like? Straight off the bat, Jesus changes our perception. What does good look like? His response why do you call me good? No one is good except God. What does goodness look like? When we've been thinking about goodness a few minutes ago, everything about the way we thought of goodness was relative. It was good compared to this. You know, that's good, that's bad. Because that compared to that is bad. And that compared to that is good. We've got this relative idea. Are you a good person in your own estimation? You might well say, I am a good person. Because my assessment of what good is, is relative to what I understand bad to be. I'm not like those people, whoever those people are. I'm a good person. You might say, I know I'm not a good person. <laughs> you might know that because I know that when I measure myself against what good people are like, I know that I've got issues. So we kind of have this relative idea. Jesus just knocks that back and says, hang on a sec, there is only one that is good. In fact, he's, he's making a statement in two, two levels here. He's making a statement, firstly he's saying, the very definition, the essence of what is good is God. Only one is good. The very essence, the very being, the nature, the character, everything that God is, is good, Jesus is saying. But he's also just throwing out a little thought, isn't he? Goodness, it's only God. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. He's actually posing a question for the man, and it's a question for all of us as well. Jesus is saying, okay, God is the only one who is good. 
Now, where do you place me? Am I, am I in the category of good, as you've just said? Because if I am, that means that I am who I claim to be, God himself. Or I'm not good. C.S. Lewis said that uh, in, in assessing Jesus Christ, he is either mad, bad, or God, in essence. Mad, the claims that he made are so ridiculous, we could only con consider him to be mentally deluded. Bad, because if he makes the kind of claims that he makes, and they are not true, then he can't possibly be good. He must be bad to make claims like that. Or he is who he claimed to be. He is either mad, bad, or God, C.S. Lewis said. There is no space, there is no region, really, to consider Jesus to be good, but not God. There's no space for that. Somebody who says, take up your cross and follow me. Somebody who says to his friends, you will die because you follow me. And they all do with the exception of one. Somebody who says that to his friends, is that good? Somebody who says you are going to lay down your life because you trust in me. That is not good if it's not true, is it? There is no margin for Jesus to be just a good man. And that's the point that Jesus is making. There's only one that is good, and that's God. So there is no space for this relative idea of goodness. The only definition of good is God. But then on the other hand, that is relative, isn't it? <laughs> because if God is good, then relative to God, where are you and I? That's the point that he's making. There is no one who is good. No one is good. And yet here we see that the Spirit of God is calling us to goodness. So how can we make that kind of transition? If we are not by nature good, if by definition we are not good, what kind of things happen to us that cause that kind of change so that we move towards goodness? Goodness that is like God. I think we see it in the journey of this man. Jesus replies to him and he says, you know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud. Honour your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. First thing that Jesus does is he presents to the man, if you like, the, 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 the moral definition, the lifestyle definition of what we consider to be good. There are ways of being which we consider to be good. There are ways of being which we consider to be bad. He's saying to the man that there are definitions, there are biblical Old Testament definitions, the law of God, that says this is how you are to live. Now if we think about that, all of these definitions are about letting go of our selfishness, aren't they? Why would you possibly... Why would you possibly lie? Why would you bear false testimony? Why would you defraud? 
Because it is a conscious decision to put yourself in a better place. To be either thought of as better or to receive something that is better than that which you are about to receive. So I am about to receive nothing. But if I defraud somebody, I will gain. It is me above them. It is truth and your view of me or somebody else's view of me. It is truth above your perception of me. So it is better for me to bear false testimony so that you will think well of me. It is a selfish act. All of this is selfishness. There is that moral definition of selfishness which is saying, where do we place ourselves in relation to others? I look on and see somebody else. I want that person at the cost of somebody else. And on that journey I am placing myself above others. And this man is turning around and he's saying, I've lived like that. My life has been consistent. I've, I've lived in an appropriate way. In other words, from his perspective, goodness in relation to others, he's been consistent. He's, he's lived a moral code, a goodness, which takes him from the negative self-centeredness to the middle ground of neutral acceptability. That's where he's placing himself. He's saying, I have lived in a way which has not done bad for others. And Jesus says, okay. Now, let me take you on another step. Jesus looked at him, loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. What is Jesus doing at this moment in time? He's moving the man from that neutral position to a point where he's, the demand that he is making on him is to positively impact the people around him at cost to himself. From that neutral to the positive. That's the shift that Jesus is demanding of this man. He's saying, you change so that it costs you for the good of others. So that it's not just about not doing bad things to them, which is the first consideration. It's about doing good things for them. The first movement doesn't cost you much. The next movement really costs you. And he can't handle that. That's goodness, I would suggest. Why do I suggest it's goodness? Because the man is asking 
Jesus, how can I gain eternal life? And Jesus says, only God is good. Eternal life is being in the presence of God. So how can I be considered good to be with God? That's the transition that the man is asking. We've been looking over these various weeks. What do each of these descriptions of the fruit of God in our lives, what do they defeat in our human nature? We've been looking at them. Kindness, the defeat of self-pity, was the last one that we looked at. I want to suggest to you, surprising one, that goodness is the defeat, it's lots of things, but it's at least this, the defeat of self-sufficiency. The defeat of self-sufficiency. Here's this man. He comes up to Jesus. Now, as we describe this, let's, let's not look at him. Let's not look at this man. Let's walk shoulder to shoulder with this man and consider our oneness with him. Let's look at a reflection of ourselves. He comes to Jesus and he says, what should I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus says, well, live a life which is good. And he says, I've done all of the things according to the law. First statement, the man is saying, look, I've done it. I'm relying on that, and that is sufficient. I am relying on myself, that my goodness is acceptable. And then Jesus takes him on another step, and he says, right now, where is your Achilles heel, where you continue to express your sufficiency, your security, In yourself. And for this man, his sufficiency, his security, his way of living in this world was I'm secure, I'm safe because of my money. That's my safety net. That's my, I can live this life. I can get through life. I've reached a point where no matter what happens, no matter what happens to the economy, no matter what happens to Greece and the euro, I'm okay. I've reached a point in life where I can get through life. I'm safe. And Jesus says that is exactly the point where you need to be challenged. Jesus is not saying here that everybody who is a believer in him needs to give up on money, give everything away. as a misinterpretation Jesus is not against money. He's against the idea that we make money our security. But it might be that as you and I walk shoulder to shoulder with this man, we might say, actually, my sufficiency, my security might not be money. What's your security? Where is your security? Where is your self-sufficiency to get through life? What is it that in your life God couldn't take away? Because if, you, if he took it away, you would fall apart. 
That's where the man was. That's what he realized when Jesus said, lose your money. I'll fall apart if that security goes. What is it for us? What are we self-sufficient in? Because goodness, being able to give freely, liberally, it might not be money. It might be my family. My time commitment to my family. I can't possibly let go of that, even though there is a need around me for my time. I can't let go of that because that is my security. If I lose that, it falls apart. And Jesus might be saying to you and he might be saying to me, that is precisely where your sufficiency, where your security is wrapped up in you and what you've got around you. He might be saying to you and to me this afternoon, what do you and what do I need to let go of? Because I'll tell you, he will peel our fingers away from things. He will release us and free us and liberate us from the very things that we think are our security. Because he wants us to know, and what this man needed to know more than anything else, that he needed to find his security, not in his goodness, not in his money, but in Jesus. That's where he needed his security to be. He needed to know that his security was in the relationship that he had with Jesus. Now, now here's the thing. If we get that, if we understand that that is our greatest security, we find that we can let go of anything. Because that's the eternal thing. The things that we think we can't let go of, we find that we can let go of. And sometimes we are pushed to extremes to realize that we are ultimately dependent not on what we've managed to construct in this life, but we're ultimately dependent on Jesus. And when we are ultimately dependent on Jesus, we are free and we are liberated to express goodness to those around us in a way that might cost us, but it doesn't matter anymore. That is the greatest barrier to our expression of goodness to those around. We feel we can't let go. Because I've got this, and if I let go of this, it ends up being somebody else's. And Jesus says, I, I know, but I'm eternal. And in me you will find eternal life. What more do you need? We are freed to goodness. Jesus goes on and there's a conversation that goes on with his disciples. They were amazed. Jesus says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. How hard it is. For the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It is hard. Why? Because that's probably in human experience. The greatest security that we could have. What does rich mean? It means everybody in this room. Actually. Because we've got a roof over our heads. And we've got food. And we've got clean water. We are rich. 
huge percentage of the world's population does not have those things that we've just mentioned. And it's the greatest security, isn't it? What if, what if I lose that? I won't lose Jesus. There's a great show on the mo- yeah, TV program on at the moment. 24 hours in A&E. It's this like kind of little um, fly on the wall of King's uh, Hospital down in London, A&E department. And it always opens with one of the nurses saying that right at the very moment when when life and death is what you're facing, then you realise that the most important things are that you're loved and there's somebody with you. You know, all of the other things go out the window. (laughs) I can understand that sentiment, but what happens when even that goes out the window? Jesus. Jesus. He lives. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. You know, you can imagine the picture. A needle, a camel. Ain't going to fit. But God makes it possible. They're all, all the more amazed. Why are the disciples amazed at what Jesus has said? They're amazed because they have never, never considered that anything other than moral upstanding was the way to eternal life. That's what shocked them. They'd always had in their minds, being good was what gained eternal life. And Jesus turns it all on its head and he says, no, it's trusting in me. And then he goes on and he says this, with man, this is impossible, but not with God, all things are possible with God. What's possible? I I think there's two levels to this. On the one level, there is the possibility that the rich can find hope in Jesus. That's all of you and me. That we can find hope in Jesus. It's great news. I think there's another level, though, Look at what Jesus says to the man. He says to the man, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Go sell everything that you have, give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. That is exactly what Jesus did. Exactly what Jesus did. It's impossible for people to do that, but it's exactly what Jesus did. 2 Corinthians tells us, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. What did that look like? It looked like Jesus leaving all of the riches and all of the glory of heaven and becoming poor in this world so that he might give to the poor his riches. See that? Isn't that amazing? That is exactly what Jesus does. He gives his riches to the poor. 
The riches that he has is the right to life in heaven. And he does it by stripping himself of his riches. That's what gives us the hope. Because Jesus says to you and me, there are riches to be given to the poor. And they are yours and they are mine. Because the king of heaven has been stripped of his riches. So that he, Jesus, might have riches in heaven. He says to you and me, let go of everything here so that you might gain riches in heaven. And Jesus let go of everything heaven in heaven, became poor so that what? So that he might gain riches in heaven. Hebrews 12:2 says, "For the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross." Why did Jesus go to the cross? Because of the joy that was before him. Was the joy the cross? No, the joy was what was beyond it. Which is you and me, if we believe and we trust in him, in heaven, with him for eternity. That's joy to him. It's worth it. That to him is riches. So Jesus didn't... It's not an equation which says that Jesus is stripped of everything and remains stripped. No, he's stripped of everything. He gives to the poor, that's you and me, so that he might gain riches, which is you and me and him in eternity forever. That is goodness. That's goodness. As Jesus said right at the very beginning, there's only God that is good. I know, you're right, Jesus, and you display it perfectly because you are God. Where else could we put our trust? Where else could we see the one who, though he was rich, became poor so that he might gain riches in heaven? Goodness, when we are stripped of our self-sufficiency, when we are trusting in Him, we are liberated to express goodness to everybody around. And we are never liberated to be good to those around until we place our trust in Him fully.